Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. Believe it or not, we are going to finish Mark pretty soon. (laughs) Not today. Last week, we were, my wife and I were in Albuquerque. We went to see the polar bears. Or as my wife said, we went to see our grandson see the polar bears. So my daughter and her family drove down from Colorado, and we met in Albuquerque to go to the zoo to see the polar bears. Go figure. There are two polar bears. They're brothers. Whatever. It was also my daughter's birthday, so we had birthday dinner and all of that stuff, too. And so we got home on Monday, and my wife flew to Colorado on Thursday for a baby shower. So she comes home today, and there will be great rejoicing. We've been working our way through the book of Mark. However many chapters ago it was, several, several, several chapters ago, Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen. I am going to be handed over I am going to be tried, I am going to be beaten, I am going to be given to the Gentiles, and I am going to be killed. And at first his disciples said, no way, this isn't going to happen, we're not going to let it, it doesn't fit in with our plans. Today, we're going to get to almost the end of that story. Two weeks ago, we talked about the trial with the, uh, the Jewish leaders where they tried to find some evidence against him and they finally just asked him, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am. And they said, what more do we have to hear? This is blasphemy. And we talked about the fact that if he were just a human being, it would have been blasphemy. But the fact that he was the son of God, it was the truth. So they then handed him over to the Romans because the Jews were not allowed to execute somebody. So they handed him over to Pilate. Pilate went through the trial, didn't find anything wrong with him, but the Jews stirred up the crowd and they asked for Jesus' death. So we pick up the story today in uh, verse 16 of chapter 15. And the soldiers, these would be the Roman soldiers, led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Before he is crucified, we have this instance here, where they are beating him, mocking him, spitting at him, and you kind of go, why? Why would you do this if you're about to execute the guy? I mean, why not just walk him out and execute him? Well, there's a semi-kind answer that people sometimes give, and that is that Pilate was kind of feeling guilty about this, and he thought that if I just beat him up a bit, the crowd will be happy and we can let him go. 
eh, I'm not sure I buy that. It is true that Pilate didn't see anything worthy of execution, but Pilate was Pilate and he was going to do what he wanted to do. The second option is, well, the Roman soldiers are just thugs. I mean, here you have this Jew, and here we have a group of Roman soldiers who are stationed in the middle of these Jews, and they probably don't have a good relationship with the Jews. We know, we know from uh, the Gospels and even in the book of Acts that there were some Roman officials who were kind to the Jews. They had a good working relationship. But the average Roman soldier probably didn't like being there. He didn't like being with the Jews. He thought they were wretched people. And here one is brought before them and they are told they can beat him up all they want. It sounds like fun if you're a thug. It says the whole battalion came out, whether they really needed 600 guys to beat up Jesus, yeah, probably not. But it was a spectator sport at this time. You know, put him out in the middle, let's make him look like a king, let's say this is the king of the Jews, and then let's punch him in the face. I mean, you have the opportunity to punch the king, you take that opportunity. I have heard of kings of England when they were young and going to school that the other students liked beating on them because they wanted to be able to say later in life that they beat up the king. We have a group of thugs, a group of thugs beating up Jesus and mocking him. We're going to see this here and we're going to see it in the next paragraph the mocking that Jesus is undergoing. And remember, what is the lesson that I said last week and the week before and the week before that? And that is that Jesus is not some pawn being dragged through this thing because he can't stop it. Jesus is choosing to go down this path. If, Judas, if Jesus had wanted to stop it, it would have stopped. Remember the whole discussion about 12 legions of angels? We've got a battalion of Roman soldiers. That's uh, maybe a seventh of a legion. And we have 12 legions of angels. It would not have been a fair fight. But it wasn't enough that they just execute him. They wanted to humiliate him and the Jewish people on their way to the execution. So they put his clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him. I am not going to go into a detailed discussion about crucifixion. There are people who have done that. You can go watch the movie that they go through it. It's a horrible way of killing someone. We in the United States today are real big on not inflicting cruel and unusual punishment. That's why we get into a debate how to execute people. In my world history class a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the French Revolution, and these kids were thinking, you know, the guillotine, that's the most horrible thing in the world. Well, the guillotine is actually a pretty effective way of killing somebody. I mean, if you got to die, that's better than a lot of the alternatives. Did you know that there is still a company in the world that makes guillotines? 
apparently some of the French colonial countries still use them as a form of execution. Cru crucifixion was made to be cruel and unusual. They weren't trying to make it easy for the guy dying. It was done to be cruel. It was done to demonstrate to the community, this is what happens to you if you mess with the Romans. It is not quick. It is not painless. It is long. It is drawn out. And it is excruciatingly painful. And that's where Jesus is headed. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Um, traditionally, the person about to be executed would have to carry the cross beam that would be attached to the upright piece to be crucified. But remember, Jesus has just been beaten to a pulp. So they give him this huge piece of wood and they say, carry this, and obviously that's not going to work. So a random individual is walking by and the Roman soldier grabs him and says, you carry this. Now, to the random Ro Roman soldier, he wasn't going to carry somebody's cross. He wasn't going to do the work. So he was going to get some random Jew. Now, it is interesting when it says, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. The idea is the readers of this probably knew who Alexander and Rufus were. So the idea is that they were probably members of the early Christian church. The book of Romans ends with Paul saying, thank you to this person, say hello to this person, this person has done a great job, and one of those people is Rufus. Now, we do not know if it is the same Rufus or whether that was a common name or not, but there is some speculation that it was. And when Paul thanks Rufus, he says, and Rufus's mother, who helped meet my needs. So that would have been Simon's wife. It's interesting how all of this is connected together. So this guy is recruited to carry the cross beam of the cross because they couldn't execute somebody inside the city itself of Jerusalem. So they carried him out to Golgotha, and there's a little discussion today about exactly where that is in the, ex the uh, outside of Jerusalem. I've been to both the two places, but anyway. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh would have been a something to kind of dull the senses, to kind of dull the senses so you didn't quite feel the pain. I mean, they're sitting here nailing nails through his hands and his feet, and it's almost an act of grace to give him this, but he isn't going to take it. Why doesn't he take it? I'd take it. I'd take a shot in the arm of whatever medicine you want to give me. 
Why, why didn't he take it? He was going to bear the penalty to the end. Remember, Jesus is God. But Jesus is also a human being. And as a human being, he had the same sense of pain, sense of despair that you and I had. Well, maybe not despair. We'll get on that one in just a moment. But maybe there was also this concern that at some point his human flesh would say, okay, that's enough, I'll stop. And he wasn't going to allow that to happen. Why? Because this is the path that God the Father had told him to follow. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, you don't have to think about this too much. They cast lots for his clothes. So what was he wearing? Nothing. Why is that of any interest to us? Because of the embarrassment and shame that is being inflicted upon Jesus at this point. Pain, embarrassment, not even the dignity to have your clothes on while you are being executed. And the people actually doing the work get to keep the stuff. There was more than one of them and there was not that many clothes, so they cast lots, which I might add is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The Jewish day starts at 9 a.m., so the third hour would have been noon. Okay? Give or take a little bit. And no, don't ask me if it was daylight savings time or not. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, we've had this discussion before going through the book of Mark. In fact, we had it the very first lesson in the book of Mark, that the book of Mark is kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospel. If you really wanted to understand the next six hours of events, you really do need to take all four of the Gospels and lay them side by side to understand in the entirety what was going on. We're not going to do that. I told you at the beginning we were going to stick to the book of Mark. I'm going to change that in two points in just a moment. But for right now, we're just looking at the story in the book of Mark. Okay? So... The sign said, the king of the Jews. Who wrote the sign? Well, Pilate told somebody to write the sign, and Pilate was going to rub it in because the religious officials accused Jesus of being a revolutionary by claiming to be the king of the Jews. Well, Pilate asked him, are you the king? And he says, well, yeah, but not of this world. Pilate knew 
that Jesus was not a threat to the Roman Empire. He knew that. So the Jews wanted some other description, but Pilate put this up there, thus, if you will, giving legal precedent to execute him. If the imperial records made it back to Rome, it would say there was a revolutionary named Jesus and I took care of it. Even though Pilate knew he was probably not a threat. But it covered Pilate's needs. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuilt it in three days. This was the charge that was brought against him at his trial. Remember, he never said he would destroy the temple. He said, You can destroy the temple and I will rebuild it. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. So he is up there hanging on a cross, butt naked, bleeding, and in pain, and the people are coming around mocking him. These would be the Jewish people. Now, just to remind ourselves, we covered this three lessons ago. Throughout church history, there has been this idea that the Jews killed Jesus. And the outcome of that has been a certain amount of anti, not certain amount, a lot of anti-Semitism in the world. Remember, the Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. Oh yes, they were the means that got him on the cross. Jesus voluntarily did this for you and me. So if you ever wake up one morning and think, I need to blame somebody for the crucifixion of Jesus, go look in a mirror, okay, and just stand there until the truth hits you. Just an idea. Don't go looking for some Jew or some Roman to blame it on, okay? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. Let's just stop right there. We have the religious leaders of the Jewish community mocking Jesus, and what they say to him is, You saved people. Now, the next phrase is, and you can't save yourself. But let's look at the first phrase. They, the religious leaders, knew that Jesus had done something. You saved others. What did he save them from in their eyes? Even they could not deny the fact that there had been people who were blind they could now see, that there were people who were sick who were now well, that there were people who were dead and were now alive. They couldn't deny that. You saved others. 
Even the religious leaders had to acknowledge that. But then they flipped it on its head and said, but you can't save yourself. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, let the Messiah, if he is the Messiah, prove it. Come on down from the cross. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Let's speculate for just one moment. This is pure, 100% speculation. Jesus looks at them and he looks in their eyes and this gleam comes to his eyes and he says, okay. Pop, out go the nails. Pop, the wounds are healed. Pop, he's on the ground. Pop, he begins to glow because he is the son of God. Pop, the armies of angelic forces are around him. Would they have believed? Would they have believed? Probably not. They'd have been terrified. They should be terrified. Remember Jesus' parable story about Lazarus, the poor guy, goes to heaven, I mean, dies and goes to heaven. The rich guy dies and goes to hell. And the guy in hell says, please send Lazarus to talk to my brothers so they don't come here. And Abraham says, they've got the prophets, they've got all... No, no, but if somebody comes back from the dead, they will believe. No, they won't. No, they won't. John the Baptist asked the question, are you the Messiah? And the answer that Jesus gave was not yes or no. The answer was, what does the Old Testament say? The blind see... The lame are made to walk, the poor are taken care of, the prisoners are released. That's what I've done. And that was the answer. Throughout his ministry, the Jewish religious leaders were always asking for one more sign. Come on, give me another sign. And if I'm Jesus, I'm sitting there going, Are you nuts? Did you not just see that this blind guy can now see? What are you asking for? We had a discussion two weeks ago that actually produced a couple of comments after class. And that discussion was regarding Jesus voluntarily going down this path. And Judas voluntarily going down this path. And someone brought up the observation that one of the Gospels does imply that Satan was using Judas. So what control did he have? Well, he still had the right to say no. But the reality is we can get sucked into our sin 
to the point that we in and of ourselves cannot see the truth. These religious officials were not going to see the truth, regardless of whether he hopped down off that cross and revealed who he truly was. But of course, we also have to answer the second question. And we answered this when we talked about Jesus praying in the garden, if you remember. If he had hopped off the cross to impress and convince the Jewish religious officials, what would have happened to us? You know the answer to that? We all would have died in our sin. We would have. Yes, he would have demonstrated who he was. But you and I would be without hope. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Remember, thief, thief, Jesus in the middle. And you go, wait a minute. I've heard this story before, but that's not the way the story goes. See, you've read the story in one of the other gospels, and it says one of the thieves was mocking him, and the other said, shut up. Okay? We're suffering for our sins, and this guy's not. And he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you get to paradise. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a great illustration about what you have to do to be saved. Because the thief on the cross did nothing except trust in Jesus Christ. Ah, We'll go with that. But if that's true, this one says they were both mocking him. They, they contradict each other. No, they don't. Okay? I'm a thief. I know I'm a thief. I'm guilty of sin. I'm also mad, as can be, because they're nailing nails into my hands. I'm going to say a few choice words. Okay? And they're not going to be fit for church. I'm going to be mad at people who are nailing the nails in. I'm going to be mad at everyone around. And I'm going to mock everybody that I can mock. On my way out of this life, I am going to let everybody know what I think of them, including the idiot on the cross next to me. But remember, he's on this cross for three Six hours? So here we have two thieves mocking Jesus. As I said, I just have this idea that they're cussing and screaming at everybody that'll listen. I mean, let's face it. They've got nails stuck in their hands. Okay? But one of them starts watching. You know the guy in the middle? He's not cussing at anybody. You know the guy in the middle? He's not blaming anybody. You know the guy in the middle? All of these people are yelling and screaming at him. 
and he is not responding. Remember, this isn't like a two-minute ordeal here. And one of those guys on the cross starts looking around and finally tells the other guy, shut up. This guy's different. I don't know what it is, but it's different. And those people on the ground just called him the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ. You're dying. And he turns to Jesus and takes the only shot that he has. And he says, will you remember me? Which is kind of interesting. He doesn't even say, get me off this stupid cross. He just says, will you remember me? And Jesus said, this day, it'll all be taken care of. So the two stories are not contradictory at all. That's why I said you need to kind of line up the two stories. And you also have to remember that it takes a lot more time than it takes to read the account here in the gospel. They're up here for, well, several hours. And when the sixth hour had come, so this is the three-hour up-on-the-cross mark, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's three hours of dark. Why? I'm sure somebody somewhere has sat, sat down with his astronomical, uh, the astronomy charts and worked out that there was probably a solar eclipse. I don't know if there was. I don't really care if there was. What I do know is that Romans chapter 8 says all creation groans because the world is not the way the world is supposed to be. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We think that's a metaphor for something. But the light of the world is sitting on the cross dying. And it says everything got dark. Let's see, it's 6 o'clock. The day starts at 9. 6 o'clock would be 3 o'clock. Okay? This isn't Antarctica or the North Pole where it could be dark. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is kind of the middle of the planet. This isn't natural because the light of the world is sitting on the cross. You can't imagine these Roman soldiers around picking up their torches going, I guess I ought to light this thing. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Ela Ela Lema Sabatide, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can have huge, lengthy, philosophical, theological discussions about what this means. The fact that God is rejecting God. But what God is rejecting is our sin. Go back and do a 20-week study of Old Testament sacrifices. I take the 
animal and I lay my hands on it and in a figurative sense, I put my sin on that animal and that animal is slain for my sin. Jesus, who had never, ever had an interruption in his relationship with the Father. You and I, not so much. Adam and Eve, once they sinned, they went and hid. Jesus had never done that. Jesus had had the relationship with God that Adam had had before the fall. And now all of humanity has laid their sins on the head of Jesus Christ. And God has turned his back. It's a picture. And says, I cannot look at that sin. And Jesus, for the first time in his life, was separated from God the Father. At this point, it's kind of interesting to think, and even, you know, the study Bibles will, will tell you, well, he knew that he wasn't totally rejected. He knew that he was going to come back from the dead in three days. He knew that all of this was going to happen. I mean, he did, right? Remember, he told his disciples, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be executed, and then I'm coming back. He knew. But did he know? He, Jesus, as a human being, hanging on the cross for your sins and mine, did he know? Did he really, as a human being, know? At this point in time, all he knew was that he was being rejected by God. And some of the bystanders, hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Wait, who is he telling to wait? Jesus? Stay alive a little bit longer. Here, drink this. It'll keep you alive for a few more minutes. We want to see Elijah. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I told you I wasn't going to sneak over to the other Gospels. I'm going to cheat. What was that cry? It is finished. Whatever it was that Jesus and God had worked out for the salvation of mankind was complete. What does that mean? You don't have to add to it. Jesus doesn't have to do a little bit more. It is the final sacrifice. Go over to the book of Hebrews, and you will see that in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice, and then the next year they had to sacrifice again, and the next year, 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 for all of Jewish history. Jesus did it once, and it was finished. And then... What happened? And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus, where the discussion of making the tabernacle was, you get a discussion about making this curtain, okay? My wife is an expert at making curtains, okay? But you and I both know that these curtains are, you know, like one or two pieces of fabric sewn together. This curtain is not that way. This curtain is this skin, this cloth, this skin, this cloth, and it's this thick. Nobody is tearing this curtain. And if you or I went in there to try to tear the curtain, where would we start? The part we could reach, the bottom. We'd start at the bottom, we'd try to tear it, and even if we did, then we'd tear it all the way up. What was the purpose of the temple? I mean, of the, the temple and the curtain going into the Holy of Holies. It was to keep the riffraff out from the presence of God. That's you and me, by the way. <laughs> one time a year, one guy went behind that curtain to enter the presence of God. We've been told that they tied a rope around his leg just in case they had to drag the body out. Why? Because you were entering the presence of a holy God and no matter how many animal sacrifices you had made, you're still going to go in there a sinner. And all you're trusting is that God doesn't zap you. One guy once a year. And all of a sudden, that separation between God and man, between God and sinful man, has been torn in half. What is finished? That which separates us from a holy God. That's what was finished. All of a sudden, you and I have the ability to enter the presence of God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The whole sacrificial system is done. It's finished. And when the centurion... You know there would have been a Roman officer here, right? This is a lousy job, by the way. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, in, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Do you remember? It's been so long ago, you probably don't remember. How we started all of this discussion of the book of Mark. Verse 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. The whole purpose of the book of Mark is to convince you and me that Jesus is the Messiah. And here we've gone through his entire earthly life, and we have a pagan Roman military officer 
tell us, yep, this guy is not like the other two people hanging on the cross. This guy is not just a good guy that happened to it, but no, he is the son of God. Now, I could stop here, and I'm going to stop here for the day, but I could stop here in the whole story, and you could be a good atheist and have appreciated the book of Mark. There are lots of good, devout atheists who have read the life of Christ and say, that was a great guy. He was a great teacher. He did great things. He showed love to people. He was compassionate on people. He was a great guy. And then they killed him, just like they did Socrates. If we stop the story here, you could walk away in believing that. Until we get to next week's lesson, which, by the way, is the Easter story. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what Christ did for us. I pray, Lord, that we, like the pagan Roman centurion, would acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.